We're going to be in Job chapter 29 through 31. We're going to be reading about Job's final appeal. Job's final appeal in the book, Job 29 through 31. Imagine with me, if you will, that Job is going to make an appearance on a show something like the people's court. We'll call it the world's court. You can cue the intro music, you know, don't, 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 don't. What you are about to witness is real. The participants are not actors. They are actual living beings. Both parties in the suit have agreed to dismiss their court cases and have their disputes settled here in our forum, the world court. Entering the courtroom now is the defendant, Job. Job says he has lost all of his possessions, his children, his respect in the community, and most of all, his friendship with God. He is here to defend himself against all accusations that God has against him. And here in the plaintiff's box is no one. God declined to show up since he has no problem with Job whatsoever. What do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? Job is going to culminate in today's readings in chapter 31 by calling God to answer him. And so we want to look and begin our study by going back to 29, Job chapter 29, because there we see that Job longs for the good old days. He longs for the good old days. First, he mourns the perceived loss of God's friendship. Look at verses 1 through 6. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head. and By his light, I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me and my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the Rock poured out for me streams of oil. Job mourns the perceived loss of God's friendship in his life. And then he mourns the loss of people honoring him for his righteousness. Look there in verse 7. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, and in, in ancient times that's where the, the elders of the city would meet and they would hear cases that disputes that people in the city had. Okay, so Job was a very honored person in his society. Verse 8, The young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Job was concerned for the justice of others. He 
lived righteously, and he was honored as a result of that. But then, in verses 18 through 20, Job mourns the loss of his dreams about how his life would go. And here's where we find Job's expectations that have been crushed. He expected to live a long life in peace, in verse 18. He is expected to be very fruitful, in verse 19. And we're going to hear echoes of Psalm 1. And then, he was expecting to maintain his vitality until he passed away, in verse 20. Let's read those verses. He said, Then I thought, I shall die in my, re- my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Job longs for the good old days when people honored him like a king. Look at verses 21 through 25. He says, men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again. And my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence. In the light of my face, they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Job longs for the days when God was his friend and people respected him. And those expectations that he had in verses 18 through 20, where he would have his vitality, and just note that his bow was there, and and his string was strung, he was still vital in his old age. That's what he expected. But as we know, Job has lost everything. Now look at how Job mourns his his humiliation in chapter 30. He mourns his humiliation first by mourning the fact that not only did he lose the honor of princes, now even the scoundrels of society look down upon him. And we're going to read verses 1 through 15 here, and he is going to describe in great detail these guys who now mock him. They sing songs about him, and they mock him. And these are guys that you would shoo away and chase away in the alleyways of of our cities and different things. They're, they're trouble. Verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 1. But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Though they want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltwort in the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They're scavengers. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together. A senseless, a nameless brood, they have been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof. From me, they do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord, that's the bowstring referring back to 
chapter 29, verse 20. How Job thought he was going to be have his vitality in old age, and now it's gone. God has loosed my bowstring and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind. And my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. <coughs> Remember Job's expectations for life in 29, 18-20? He expected to live a long life in peace, being fruitful and maintaining his vitality. Now terrors have come upon him in verse 15. And in the following verses, we see his strength and health are gone. Job finds no rest, and death seems certain. Verse 16, And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. All this calamity has come upon Job, and Job blames God. Look at verses 18 through 23. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It's like God has grabbed Job by the collar here and cast him down into the mire is the picture that he's painting. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand like in a court, and you only look at me. You've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, and you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. It's like God has picked him up in a windstorm. We see these tornadoes that come and and they're picking up debris and tossing them about. That's how Job feels that God has treated him. And next, Job wrestles with how God, whom Job considered a friend, could allow this unjust suffering to continue. Look at verses 24 through 31. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Job's talking back to his days of right, his days when he would, he would be compassionate towards people going through difficult times. Verse 26, but when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and Never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened by not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Job's health is gone. Now, we stated before back in chapters 3 and 4 that circumstances are an unreliable test of God's favor. But, so we're not going to belabor that point today. Instead, we note that Job mourns his humiliation in the eyes of people and his standing with God. 
How could God allow this unjust suffering to continue? What has Job done to deserve this? There's nothing that he can think of. So now Job calls for God to give him a day in court. He longs to know why. Why, Lord, am I suffering? To the best of his knowledge, he's innocent. And Job is described as blameless and upright. That's without sin and just. And nowhere is that seen more than what we see here in chapter 31. Job now enters that world court that I mentioned at the beginning. He's going to defend his innocence. And let me read from a commentary by Francis Anderson. He is going to defend his innocence with an oath of clearance in the form of a negative confession. What does that mean? Well, although made in the interest of one's public honor, it was addressed to God in an appeal against human judgment. The form Job uses is, if I have done X, then let Y happen to me. X is the crime, Y is the penalty. Since Job is handing everything over to God, the sentence is not a statutory penalty, such as a fine or reparation. It is some act of God. God arranges for someone else to do the same thing to the culprit by way of retaliation. Job here fully endorses and affirms the doctrine that you reap what you sow. And so he is going to go through a series of oaths saying, if I have done this, then let this happen. And he goes through and we see that he is upright. He begins by stating his determination not to lust. Look at Job 31 verses 1 through 4. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? Note here that the omniscience of God informs Job's determination not to lust. Because God sees all, Job watches carefully what his eyes see. And he knows that calamity from the Lord is what people who break God's covenant should fear. And so he sets forth all these things. And now we see a series of oaths. He has that covenant with his eyes because God sees all. And then because God sees all, it's going to fall down into all these different oaths regarding a variety of sins. Look first at deceit in verses 5 through 8. He says, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. He says here, if my heart has gone after my eyes, it's the pattern in Scripture that we see uh, where someone sees something and they take it. Like Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good and so she took it. And we see that same phrase repeated throughout the Scriptures. It's a pattern that goes. And so he is saying here, if I have deceived people to get what I want, then let, let them have the food that I have grown and then what grows for me, let it perish. Next, he speaks of adultery. 
If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, a word for destruction. And it would burn to the root of all my increase. Adultery is a sin that is punishable by human courts and divine justice. Punishable by the judges and then consuming as far as destruction in hell. Oppression, we see in verses 13 through 15. He says, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me. Okay, so now here, if we think in modern day terms of employees, they have a problem with something Job has done. And if he rejects their cause, if he's ever rejected their cause when they came to him with a complaint. Verse 14, what then shall I do when God rises up in judgment? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Note again how God's theology, his belief about God drives his actions. The image of God in man informs Job's respectful and just treatment of others. Job does not consider himself better or more superior to other humans, even his servants who have a complaint against him. Both are made by God and are precious in God's sight. Then he gives four different oaths about miserliness. The subject of the oath turns towards the use of his possessions in verses 16 through 23. He says, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. And from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. Here the fear of God motivates Job's generosity. He is to use the abundance that God has given him to help those that do not have. He treated the people that came through his place very well. He looked out for the poor, the widows, the fatherless. The widows, the fatherless. He was kind to the immigrants. He feared that if he did wrong, God would mistreat him. God has a heart for the weak and defenseless. You will read throughout the Scriptures often of God's love for those without fathers and the widows who are the weak of society, who have no husband to provide for them or to defend them, no children to watch out for them. God's heart is towards them. And to mistreat those to whom God's heart is inclined endangers a person when they enter God's presence. We must move on. Greed and idolatry inform us in verses 24 through 28. Greed and idolatry, the two are linked. 
He says, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence instead of God, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone and the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. It's a little difficult to see there the way it's phrased. Kind of we get the thing of Job blowing kisses, if you will, to the sun and the moon. There's idolatry. Ultimately, idolatry is rooted in some form or fashion to creation. And in Colossians 3, 5, we are told that covetousness is idolatry. It's worshiping something in creation instead of the Creator. How does that work itself out in our lives? Well, idolatry is wanting something so badly that you're willing to disobey God in order to get it. Wanting something on this earth, whether it's money, cars, houses, prosperity, power, fame, so badly that you're willing to disobey God in order to get it. Then he moves on to vindictiveness. Verse 29. One that's pretty hard. if You've got somebody that you feel is against you. Verse 29. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. In other words, somebody, somebody that was against him, ruin came on them, and Job wasn't even happy about it. That's... Pretty amazing. There's a difference as we begin to look at the use of possessions. There's a difference between covetousness and envy. Covetousness says, I wish I had what you have. Envy says, I wish I had what you have and you didn't. And so when something bad happens to somebody else, it can be difficult not to rejoice in that. Then he moves on to selfishness. This is the sojourner. This is people that have come and stayed at his house. And Job is uh, giving an oath that he has taken care of those who have come to his home and sojourned with him and then moved on. Verse 31, he says, If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. He's taken care of the weary travelers. He's not been selfish. He's not been hypocritical. In verse 33, he says, If I've concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude, and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Here we see hypocrisy. Fear of people instead of fear of God will lead to living lives of hypocrisy. Fear of people instead of fear of God will lead us to live lives full of hypocrisy. And then we need to skip down to verses 38 through 40 for the final oath. It's exploitation. Exploitation of the land and land that he had rented off of other owners and that type of thing. Verse 38, he says, If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. And then finally, we back up to verse 35 and see Job's plea to know from God 
what accusations are against him. But we, the reader, know that there are no accusations against God. I mean, against Job by God. Verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me to hear his case. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. The Expositor's Bible Commentary, Elmer Smick, says this about these passages. How does this brash attitude towards his accuser fit the statements accompanying the oath about Job's fear of God's terror? This strange paradox in Job's mind that God, to whom he appealed for support, was also his adversary, is the main point of the chapter. Fearing the terror of God is meant for those who break covenant with him. Job knew he had not done this, but he could not deny the existential reality that he stood outside the sphere of covenant blessing. Something was wrong. There was only one way Job knew to make this absurd situation intelligible. That was to appeal to his just and sovereign Lord as a vassal prince who had been falsely accused. Even though he had repeated it often, he obstinately refused to accept as final that God was his enemy. That was Elmer Smick. See, Job has produced, or excuse me, not produced, pronounced his innocence through a string of oaths. He is demanding that God hear his legal case. His desire is that God will judge him or verify his oaths. Let's focus on Job's view of the situation here as we summarize these passages. Job's view of the situation. According to Job, there was a time when God was Job's friend and his blessing was upon Job. That's from chapter 29. Also in chapter 29, Job expected to have a life of covenant blessings. A long life lived in peace, being fruitful and maintaining his vitality until he passed away. But that didn't happen. According to Job, God has turned cruel and instead of hearing Job's cries for help, is now persecuting Job. Chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. Job wonders, how can his friend be his persecutor? How can the one who Job is certain will justify him also be his accuser? Job believes he deserves an answer from God as to why this unjust suffering has befallen him. Now, I think it's important for us to note that when Job faced unjust suffering, he did not rebel against Job. Uh, against God and turn to sinful things. When Job couldn't understand why he was going through such a difficult time, he didn't deconstruct his faith. When Job's expectations for how his life should go were not met, he didn't turn to other gods. No, when Job faced unjust suffering, even though from his point of view it was God, who was against him, Job turned to God and he lamented and he vented his frustration and he sought for a reason why this was happening. And I believe this process of uh, lamenting to God is part of what helped Job keep his sanity in a tremendously difficult situation. Remember, Job is being persecuted not because he did something wrong, but because he was righteous. It was Satan's test. 
to see if Job was a gold digger or not. Job was being persecuted because he was righteous. Job turned to God in this difficult situation. What about you, Christian? What do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do when you're disappointed about how your life has turned out? What do you do when it seems that God is against you and you don't know why? What do you do when you face unjust suffering? Beloved, it is okay to long for the good old days, to express to God your frustration with your current situation as you see it, and to long to know the reason why. And I've put it this way in this somewhat rhyming, right? I do not have a career as a rapper, okay, but... Uh, if you want to go ahead to the next slide, I think is uh, where I have my little rhyme. No, go forward. Sorry about that. There you go. When you are in an unjust predicament, it is okay to turn to God and lament, vent, and seek an explanation for your puzzlement. When you are in an unjust predicament, it is okay to turn to God and lament, vent, and seek an explanation for your puzzlement. God's got big shoulders. I mean, as, 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 as we read through those passages, can you, ever, can you imagine going to God and saying, you're persecuting me. You've turned cruel to me. We tend to think of ourselves as a little more civilized, right? Like, oh, don't, no, don't say that. Job didn't sin. God knows. And as we went through this series of messages, I've told you, there's been times in your life, more than likely, if you had children, that they've come up to you and they've accused you of being unfair or unjust or mean and may have even said, you don't love me. And you didn't beat them to a pulp or anything, right? You had compassion on them. You listened to them. And you wished that there was some way that you could, un- that you could explain to them. But they just wouldn't understand. And so you listen. That's God, beloved. He's got big shoulders. He knows you don't see the big picture. Just like Job. And he knows that you're misguided in some of your accusations against him. But it doesn't change his love for you. So when you're in an unjust predicament, it's okay to turn to God and lament. And to vent and to seek an explanation. Today, we also saw that Job had some expectations about how his life would go. He expected that covenant obedience would result in covenant blessing, and often it does. But to treat blessing for obedience as a formula ignores the facts of sin, injustice, and spiritual warfare in this present age. So sometimes we do what is right, And we do receive a blessing from it. Job saw many years of that, right? But there are sinful, wicked people in this world, and there are sinful spiritual forces that work in this world, just like in Job's case with Satan. And sometimes we do what is right, and unjust things happen. For which sin do you wish to stone me, Jesus said. For which good work, actually, he said. There was no sin in our Savior, yet he was crucified. But some of you may be here this morning and you've thought life would be a lot different than it is right now in your life. 
And we are seeing in the book of Job that Job served God for God's sake. I mean, we've seen all these theological motivations behind his actions. He served God for God's sake. But what motivates your service to God? What motivates your service for God? It's easy to fall into the trap of believing that our righteous deeds or holiness earns us some benefit from God. That because we serve God, we somehow deserve certain things in life. I like what John Walton and Kelly Vizcano said in the NIV application commentary. He said this, we may be lured into believing that our righteousness does or should earn us special consideration from God. It is critical that we as Christians understand that righteousness is solely an end and never a means. Righteousness is not a bargaining chip, but is rather the offering that God asks of us and which we owe to him as our creator and savior. Righteousness should be our natural response to the fact that God is God. I've said before, when you go to the throne, it's called the throne of grace. We don't earn things. It's not, it's not the throne of bartering. God, if I do this, you do this. Because what do you have to offer God that he doesn't deserve anyway? Right? He's like, well, okay, let me think here. I made you, gave you everything you have. Now you're saying I need something when I don't need anything. And so that I'll give you this. It doesn't make sense, right? It's a throne of grace. We we go as a as a son or a daughter to the Father and we ask. And He gives. If it's good for us, He gives it to us. Daddy, can I have a candy bar? Well, maybe. It's right before dinner. No. Because what have, what have we heard? It'll what? Spoil your dinner. Man, I hated that phrase growing up. But He'll do he, he loves us, beloved. So we don't want to be lured into thinking that our works earn us anything. Today, we also saw that Job mourned the loss of people honoring him. As we have seen, Job served the Lord for the Lord's sake. But sometimes our good works are motivated by the praise and adulation of people. And it's easy for Christians to fall in the trap of fearing what others think more than what we fear what God thinks of us. And the Bible tells us that the fear of man is a snare. We also saw today that Job was a blameless and upright man whose view of God influenced his thoughts, his actions, and his treatment of his fellow man. Now, I don't know about you, but as we looked at Job's case for his righteousness, I was struck to the fact, struck by the fact that my righteousness doesn't match up to Job's, much less Jesus Christ. I fail to rise up to the standard that Job kept. And what that does is it makes me thankful as a Christian for the active obedience of Christ. Theological term that we use, the active obedience of Christ. He kept the law for us because we couldn't. I have not led a holy, righteous life. I do not lead a holy, righteous life. But Jesus did. 
Jesus Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law because we could not. Romans 10.4 says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, or Christ is the end of trying to keep the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes, the way we get God's righteousness is through faith in Christ, what He did for us in His death, burial, and resurrection for our sins. We can't have the righteousness of God by keeping the law because we can't keep the law holy. So God gave us another way to have his righteousness. Christ actively obeyed the whole law for the whole of his life. And if we place our faith in Christ's work on our behalf, God gives us Christ's righteousness. It's a righteousness of faith through faith. Second Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge you today to do that because we can't keep the law. We're not upright and just like Job. We need Christ. So repent of your sin today and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. And beloved, what do you do when God doesn't meet your expectations? Well, sometimes you end up in an unjust predicament. And it's okay to turn to God and lament and to vent to Him about how you perceive He's treating you and to seek an explanation for your puzzlement. 